What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto and leading the toxic femininity charge this week. On our panel, we have the amazing Jessica Luther, weightlifter extraordinaire and my favorite PhD candidate slash croissant maker and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. She's in Austin and Dr. Brenda Elsie, president of the Feminist for Leo Messi fan club, undeniable genius and associate professor of history at Hofstra University in Long Island. Before I start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, an opportunity to record on the bird pile, and other special features only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, and our social media guru, Shelby, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing. We are so grateful for your support and happy that our flamethrowing community is growing. We have a badass show for you this week that includes discussions about FIFA, Palestine, and the Israeli state. I will interview Himal Javeri, a brilliant writer at USA Today about Austin Matthews' sexual harassment and how the NHL does not deal with it properly. And then we will talk about bandwagon fans. Let's get started. Before I start, let's talk about karma being a beautiful bitch. So right now, the IAAF championships, the track and field championships are happening in Doha, Qatar. And I just want to talk about Lindsay Sharp losing so badly. Jess, can you take this one? Yeah, so Lindsay Sharp is a British 800 meter runner. She is a, it's important to say she's like a stereotypical thin white blonde woman. And the reason that we're sort of gloating here is that in Rio in 2016, she came in sixth in the 800 meter, and which Caster Semenya, who we've talked about a lot on the show, won. And Sharp was critical of Semenya, saying, you know, I've tried to avoid the issue all year. You can see how emotional it all was. We know how each other feels. It is out of our control and how much we rely on people at the top sorting it out. The public can see how difficult it is with the change of rule, which the change of rules that Semenya was allowed to run. But all we can do is give it our best. And Semenya is not in Doha at the World Athletics Championship defending her title because the IAAF created a rule specifically banning her. Sharp 
<laughs> like she came in six in Rio and was complaining about the winner. She didn't even get out of her heat. What did she? She was fourth in her heat out in the first round, mm-hmm. which does feel mm-hmm. like a nice big kiss from karma. <laughs> Just sitting here smirking. I know. I it's so good. It's like, it, it's just like all of the Twitter, you know, sort of piling onto her is completely 100% deserved. Like she gave an interview. She was frustrated. I understand that. But you've had years to clarify and apologize and see what words like yours have done to to the wonderful, beautiful Castro Semenya. So you know what? Haha. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that... I agree with Brenda. The Twitter pile was hilarious. And normally, like, I'm a very positive person and I appreciate women in sports. I appreciate the effort. But, oh, my gosh, it was so great to see that just in the sense of one of the memes I saw was a person looking around and the quote um, by this really funny person who I think Shane Thomas, a friend of the show, retweeted was Lindsay Sharp looking around to blame an African like just for her result, like I just couldn't stop laughing at that because like <laughs> if you're gonna be homophobic and racist, I'm sorry, I'm not cheering for you. Hard stop. <laughs> Brenda, do you want to take us into our first discussion, please? Sure. So this week there's something that had occurred in in global football. That was very distressing and also part of years and years, decades and decades oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, What happened is, I'll just explain a little bit, that there's a cup, a tournament called the FIFA Palestine Cup. And it's meant to choose the best club cup, like a club team, right? Not the national team. These are club teams. And the idea is that it's going to have the champion of the Gaza Cup, which is a league in Gaza, and the champion of the West Bank, and they're going to play each other. And then once they do, they'll be able to go on to the Asian Club Championship and then possibly even qualify for the World Cup Club Championship. So th- this is a pretty big deal. It's it, it's really like something that, that teams look forward to and train for players train their whole lives for. And what happened is the first time it was supposed to be held was this past July. And the Israeli government denied exit visas to the players. And once again, this past week, the Israeli government has refused to give travel permits to most of the members. I think only 10 received them of the Gaza-based club, Kadamet Rafa. Those are the defending champions of this cup. And they were trying to play Nablus FC Balada. And that's, that's uh, located in the Central West Bank. So, okay, that's just a little bit of uh, background. Just so you know, the, the these teams, I mean, Palestinians have been playing since the 19th century, First official league, 1928, and they've been officially in FIFA since 1998. So, okay, so this shouldn't be, the issue is that this shouldn't be happening right now. Like, there is no reason except just just outright cruelty on the part of the Israeli government. They presented no reasons 
for denying them the travel permits. And I've written a lot about Chile. I've written a lot about Palestinians in Chile who have played in Chile since the 19-teens and who are often used on the national team because of, of these types of issues. So they frequently use the Palestinian diaspora um, to try to put together teams. It's just heartbreaking and cruel. It's, it's just cruel to do this. There's no other intention. And there have been Jewish activists and groups on the grassroots level who have said the same thing, that there isn't a reason about security concerns, that this is just about crushing the hopes and dreams of Palestinian athletes. And this also happens to happen to to women, the women's team quite a lot. And we can talk about that too. So I don't want to take up much more time, but I just wanted to set the stage for our discussion. Jess? Yeah, I just wanted to ask a quick question to make sure that I understand exactly what's happening. Based on what I read, so this team is just, they have to pass through Israeli territory. So they need permission from Israel to move through that. And that they're just trying to go, I read, several dozen kilometers. Like that's as far as they need to go. And they won't, they're just not letting them move through that space. Is that correct? Well, no, yes and no. It's okay. occupied territory. So for Gaza, okay. Gazans to leave Gaza, which is occupied they have to go through an Israeli checkpoint. So they actually have to go through like security. And it's a trip that is about, I think it was about 87 miles to Nablus. If I'm, I might be getting that wrong. Sorry to my friends in Gaza if I'm getting that wrong. But this is what we see of the restricted mobility of daily life of people who are in, oppressed and who live under these restrictions. And the reason stated by the Israeli state was they have links to quote unquote terrorism. And this is arbitrary. There's no proof. And the thing is that they don't have to prove it to anybody. There's they, they, they decide the rules, judge and jury, et cetera. And it's a very specific attempt to like quash any hope and joy, which is very well linked to football, you know, in that region. And uh, so to answer your question, they have to go through the security specifically. It's still it's still Palestine, but they don't even have the freedom of mobility there. And that's, it's been very stressful. I've written about the targeted, you know, the specific targeting of Palestinian footballers, specifically in Gaza, because it's one of the most heavily policed, it is the most heavily restricted and policed places. It's also one of the most resilient and beautiful places. Football is a huge, huge part of life there. Women play on the beach, people play everywhere. And I do want to just shout out quickly Dave Zirin, who has written extensively on this since, since for a very long time. And I, I really would be remiss if I didn't give Dave that hijab tip specifically because he was the reason I started sports writing when I read a story of his in 2013, very specifically how the Israeli state targets infrastructure to destroy the hope of youth. And this is part of a plan of oppression, part of what that is. And this is no different. I mean, we've heard cases of Mohammed Sarsour, who was a Palestinian footballer who went on a hunger strike just to protest this. And that was in 2013. 14 or 15, I believe. And, you know, we, we see this constantly. We see how the feet of footballers were specifically targeted by Israeli snipers, by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And they're just trying to play football and quashing any possibility of that demoralizes people. And this is a very intentional thing. 
I think that, you know, we've seen some solidarity around the world. Celtic fans, uh, Celtic fans in, in Scotland are very, we see, you know, pieces of this all over the place where Celtic fans in Scotland will hold up flags and show their Palestinian solidarity. And, but then you run into the issue of you can't have political statements and the club gets fined. So like, as Brenda was talking about, there's places all over the world, particularly in Chile and in Latin America, where there are showing signs of this, but we hear very little from FIFA. And FIFA recognizing Palestine as an actual country in 1998 was a very big deal because they were met with a lot of resistance. Now, FIFA very badly tries to sort of pander to everybody insofar that they put like the Israeli state into UEFA. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, that clubs in Israel, which is the European, <laughs> you should say, which is the European Confederation. Yeah, because they were they were getting resistance in the Asian Football Confederation, which handles all of you know Asia and the Middle East and Central Asia. The Israeli state clubs don't actually they don't actually play in that region. They play in in Europe to sort of accommodate. So there's this constant lack of resolution. And you know, Brenda has talked about FIFA trying to play diplomat. In, and, you know, including places like clubs like Barcelona, who, you know, although I love Barca, is not anywhere near any type of diplomacy and has no standing there. So, like, I don't even know that's a thing. But Brenda, go ahead. I just wanted to add, you know, that that 1998 recognition of Palestine by FIFA was considered, you know, as you're saying, a really important thing for Palestinians. The idea of nationhood has been so besieged and attacked and it was seen as this really wonderful step it was fiercely opposed by israel so even recognizing them has been completely frustrating for israel the other issue though is that fifa has their bylaws insist that member states abide by un rulings and that's what they're leaning on and one of the things that's very has been very frustrating is the continuing recognition of clubs based in Jewish settlements and places that the UN has said that Israel should not be settling. So FIFA, FIFA ha, should be reacting to this. They have in their bylaws all sorts of ways in which to do so. And not only to this, but the denial of, of travel permits, much less the you know, murder of many Palestinian players, detentions, illegal detentions, you name it, destruction of facilities. And, and Shireen has written about this so much. So I'm not telling you anything new, but I just, I think there's a way that it's so obvious in FIFA bylaws that they should not be accepting this. I mean, is it, the Israeli Football Federation should be paying serious fines and getting seriously sanctioned for doing anything with those clubs that are on occupied territories, illegal settlements. Yeah, thanks for that, Bren. I wrote about this for Mondo Weiss in 2016, where FIFA, in all their phenomenal reign, had just kept postponing decisions about sanctioning the Israeli state teams yes. in occupied territories. And that's how FIFA yes. handles this. And in 2016, Human Rights Watch got involved and released a really damning report emphasizing and pointing that FIFA should really speak up about the IFA, which is the Israeli Football Association, and they're literally being played on occupied land. And the teams in question were Beitar Khavat Zev, Beitar Ironi Ariel, and Beitar Ironi Male 
Adimim, Irony, Yehuda, and Yapoel Bikat. And they're all literally based in illegal settlements in the West Bank land that was illegally seized. But then again, you get to a place when you're living under oppression that is just, that's just what happens. And I think there's there's a very long history here that, you know, we're going to add links to the show notes so, so people can read up about it. But this is also something we felt important to talk about because other than Dave at The Nation, and I know that Deadspin had an article about it as well. And, you know, I just want to say this is not something that's, you know, much reported on. And Louise Pez Pomar wrote about it for Deadspin, that this is something that people don't know that's happening right in front of them because, you know, mainstream media in the West doesn't often choose to write about this. Jess? Yeah, I, I'm mainly just listening to you guys and learning. I was telling you guys that sad to admit that before Shireen really brought this up as a topic, I didn't know a ton about it. It had really flown under my radar. And it is really shocking stuff. And I think it just, I mean, I don't have anything smart or brilliant to say. It just clearly, it's such a perfect example of the way that sports are inherently political. And I do find that tension with FIFA really fascinating that FIFA's recognition of Palestine in 1998 was so important to the point that Israel was so angry about it, I think shows how much it mattered. But the fact that FIFA is also so arbitrary and how it decides to punish people who break their rules, how it's letting these people down and, and letting the game down. And just again, showing that this is all, it's all political all the time, especially for the lived experiences of the people who they're failing. I guess the last thing I would like to do is blame one more institution. <laughs> I'm sorry. Run by privileged white dudes. You don't have to apologize. You can never okay, apologize. Thanks. Yeah, not here, right? Um, <laughs> not here. But is also UEFA. Like, what the hell are you doing? That's another. I mean, I remember Desmond Tutu coming out and saying UEFA needs to strip Israel of these championships because because what they're doing is essentially totally at odds with like UN human rights established rules. <laughs> how can they get away with this? And I know how they can get away with this. It's about power. But I just want to reiterate you know, there are also tons of organizations and we can put link to show notes. There are ones, you know, that are that are Jewish, that are that are pro-Palestinian statehood, that are also very active in Europe and trying to pressure UEFA. So we know that the resistance is out there and also needs more attention, but just to shit on UEFA before we do. Moving on to our next segment. I had a fantastic conversation with Amal Javeri, who is a brilliant writer at USA Today for the win specifically. And she and I talked about Austin Matthews, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the alleged harassment case that he's involved in and what media got wrong. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I am so happy to have Himal Javeri with me today. Himal is an amazing writer and editor at USA Today for The Win, where she focuses on the intersections of sports and culture, in addition to being a very powerful writer. She is also 
a slayer of karaoke, and I am so happy to have her on today to talk about many things, including Austin Matthews, the Maple Leafs, and why hockey media is shitty, but also maybe she can sing some Gold Digger for me later. Hello, Himal. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on Burn It All Down. So let's jump right in to this festering pile of garbage that we see very timely. And for those that don't know what happened with Austin Matthews and who he is, would you mind giving us a quick summary? Sure. So if you are not familiar, Austin Matthews is... uh, Basically, the golden child in Toronto for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He is a a star player and he's one of hockey's rising stars, right? If you are familiar with hockey at all, you've kind of heard of Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin. Austin Matthews is basically what is known as probably a generational player. He is a kid with a lot of talent and is expected to do great things for the Maple Leafs. How old is Austin Matthews? He just turned 22. Okay. Yeah. So he just turned 22, which I th- I think his age will actually be a little bit relevant as we keep talking about this. Now, the incident in question, it came out earlier this week that Austin Matthews was actually, there have been disorderly conduct charges filed against him for an incident that took place on May 26th, a few months ago where a security guard who works at his building filed a report stating that Matthews and a few of his friends tried to get into her car where she was sitting and doing paperwork at about two o'clock in the morning. Now, she says that after this happened, she got out of the car and confronted them and asked them, you know, do you understand that why this would be so scary for for a woman? And instead of being apologetic or trite, she said that Matthews kind of tried to play off as, as a joke, said, I was just trying to be funny. His friends tried to defuse the situation. And at that point, according to the report, Matthews walked away and pulled down his pants and mooned her. And... Uh, There's further reporting that came out with The Athletic where Katie Strang says that uh, this is not the first time that they've actually interacted with this security officer. So they knew that she was a woman alone in her car. And then apparently she filed a police report the next day. And it actually only came to light earlier this week. And Matthews had not even told the team about it. So that's where we stand with the situation as it is now. I just, I have so many questions. Like, I know that, you know, and they also, there was reports that alcohol played a factor in this too, that he was intoxicated. Now, where to start that this security guard who, according to also what you wrote, is a a vet. Is a vet, yeah. She is a military veteran who says, who, you know, told them that she suffered from PTSD. Absolutely. So having a bunch of guys, white guys try to break into her car, I mean, I would be terrified. So yeah, there's so many things about this story that I find really disturbing. And one of the first, which is first, the incident itself, which is that he was, according to the report, again, visibly intoxicated, as were his friends, that they tried to get into her vehicle at two o'clock in the morning played it off as a joke, uh, and then refused to see the seriousness of kind of what they had done, right? They were not, or at least Matthews was not apologetic about the situation. When I first heard about it, my initial reaction was, 
kind of this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach because uh, I I don't want to like speak for every woman or and but as a woman this you know I feel like we've all experienced this kind of fear this kind of fear of a bunch of drunk rowdy guys coming at you and kind of this internal clenching because you just have no idea what's going to happen next right it could they could just walk by and nothing could happen or you're going to get harassed or it's going to turn violent. So that was my initial reaction to it. And then what was even more distressing is uh, hockey media's reaction to the story, because it did not mirror at all uh, the general public reaction that I was seeing from women. And it seems, again, so simplistic to say that this was a weird gender divide, but it was very much a gender divide. Women that I was seeing on social media were talking about how upsetting this incident was, and men on social media, and a lot of hockey writers as well, were just saying, were leaning into the jokes, right? They were leaning into the the butt jokes. They were talking about, well, he was just being a drunk idiot. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a very massive divide. And it was actually pretty frustrating. I think as someone else who's who plays a part in the media, I'm in Toronto and not a Leafs fan, but that's not going to, you know, that's not going to, I mean, I respected Danny Pug fan back in the day. So let's just leave that there. But your piece for the win was really, really important. And I really hope everybody reads it. We're going to attach it in the show notes. Just sort of speaking about that and talking about how media responded. And I mean, let's be very clear about this. Hockey media in North America is, I would say, 98% white, cishet, able-bodied men. I would actually, I think that statistic is fair. Now, also to minimize, I mean, when I first saw this news, my immediate thought was, I wonder who's going to come out and what defenses will be used. And they were really, they were ranged from, oh, he's a kid to, oh, this is funny. And like you said, and even people who I thought might be more critical were not. So, I mean, that's my own fault for believing that there could be some critical analysis of the situation. But even the idea of joking, it takes away so much. And that was your point, that it's not a joke. Like, this is quite serious. And when the people who are supposed to be reporting on it are doing a terrible job because they're, you know, reducing it to laughter. Like this is about somebody actually being scared. No, it wasn't. Thank God it wasn't rape. But this is the first step in a society that, you know, is totally complicit in rape apologia. This is what it is. Like it's it's this, you know, toxic environment where these kinds of things are considered not only acceptable, but just part of the status quo. And I, like I said, your piece was really important is there, as a woman of color and like a visibly South Asian woman, do you ever think when you write these pieces that, do you ever anticipate the pushback you'll get? Because you're literally putting yourself out on a limb here. Yeah, absolutely. This might be a little bit of a segue, but I guess it's important to frame this in the context of the discussion that we're going to have. But I think I made a choice uh, I'm not sure it was a conscious choice, but it was definitely a choice that I made to approach the sport the way that I do, because I knew that it was going to end up burning a lot of bridges for me. It was going to end up uh, costing me access, costing me a good relationship with the league. But I felt that it was necessary because there was there are very few, I won't say nobody, but there are very few people who are able to write from this perspective. So when I first started my career, I was a social media editor when I first started, and I really wanted to write about hockey. I really wanted to write about sports. So I pursued that very heavily. And I was grateful for my bosses who let me do that. 
And for the first couple of years, I was on a very traditional hockey reporting path. I tried to write profiles. I kind of picked up like feel good stories as is. I tried to maintain this like solid relationship with the league so that I could cultivate sources. And then what I started to realize is that I was really censoring myself from some of the things that I wanted to say because I felt like I had to maintain these relationships. And that is what a lot of hockey media has to do. You have to hold your tongue because you will lose access. And it kind of came through, you know, when allegations against Patrick Kane came out, uh, when the NHL decided to have Kid Rock uh, play the All-Star game. These were all decisions that I did not agree with, that I did not see people writing columns about why this might be upsetting to certain fans. And there was a whole swath of people that were just being ignored. And I had a platform and I had something to say. And I was like, well, I'm going to say it. And that has kind of led me down this path. But I'm very aware that I'm definitely not, you know, the NHL like does not look at me as like a favorable media member, right? There are people who they will go to when they have stories that they want to break. I'm not that person. And I knew that that's kind of the path I was putting myself on, but I felt like it's really important because who else is going to say this? There, there are very few people that are able to say it. So yeah, I do. That's kind of a long way of answering your question in that like, I knew the, I knew the pushback that I was going to get. I knew that I would be burning potential networking bridges by calling out three really popular white male hockey writers who I know just through the industry. Like I don't know Bruce Arthur, but I know Pete Blackburn, who I mentioned in the article, Greg Wazinski, who I also mentioned in the article, but it was important enough that I had to say, like, you can't do this because who else is going to say that? Who else is, is going to be that voice? Yeah, I think that as far as I'm concerned, you're definitely one of the places I like to get my hockey news from because of your perspective. And I know that our listeners out there, and if you're not already following Himal, we'll give you, she'll give us information on where to find her work. I think it's really important. Your perspective is so fresh. It's so smart. It's so necessary, particularly in this abyss of, you know, male like toxicity that is hockey. And that for those of us that really love it, I'm assuming the the Hurricanes are your team. Are the Hurricanes your team? You know, I'm based out of Washington, D.C. So I guess if I had to pick a team, I might pick the Capitals. But I've been so immersed in hockey now that I've kind of lost all my fandom. It's it's probably the saddest part of, of having to cover it like professionally for work. I still have players that I really, really like that I think like fingers crossed, I hope are just decent. So I'm not a huge fan of any team anymore. But I guess if I had to pick regionally, since I'm based out of Washington, DC, it's it's the Capitals. Yeah, that, sorry to digress. I just was like trying to place you. I thought for some reason you were, yeah, you were in, in North Carolina. But no, I think that I mean, and I'm like, oh, I love the Caps. They were really great with like Black Girls Hockey Club. They were really great with Fatma Ali, who was, you yeah. know, like from the United Arab Emirates. Like, but then someone will fire back and say, yeah, well, they went to the White House and Ovi hangs out with Ivanka Trump. So it's like hockey is one of those places that you really struggle with. There's pros, there's cons, there's many, many cons. You're trying to find the light in that tunnel and you actually are a light in that tunnel. So I want to thank you for the work you do. And I really recognize what you were saying about feeling like you're burning bridges. I mean, people 
have said that, you know, the work that I do is, is trailblazing. I'm like, you mean, it's just blazing because the whole path <laughs> is just like firing down, you know, and, and yeah. calling out. And it was very important for you to name the people that can need to do better. And I really appreciate that. And on that note, are there people starting with yourself that you trust to do this kind of reporting? Like, where can we look for what you think is solid reporting with nuance? Yeah, I, I think that there are different places. I think Jamil Hill, she is a columnist at the Atlantic. She's obviously, she does a lot more column writing now, but there is, that's the place I go to for perspective. I think Katie Strang at The Athletic is really good as well. She, in addition to this Austin Matthews story, when Slava Voinov uh, was uh, trying to get back into the NHL, had a really great story about breaking down the exact nature of the allegations against him so that you could totally see what he was being accused of doing. So it became very difficult to sweep everything under the rug. I think she's great. There is a local website called Russian Machine. It's like a fan blog for Washington Capitals fans, but they're frankly do really, really incredible work. There are two white guys who are in charge of it, Peter and Ian, but they have a long list of staff writers who are, you know, intersectional, queer, and they publish really great work. Uh, some columns, there's a great column on there about the Austin Matthews things, which is this, which is a personal perspective from a woman about an incident that occurred to her that made the, the Austin Matthews situation so personal. So they, they do great work as well. Yeah. And thank you for that. And I know our listeners were taking note in addition to helping us like learn more. And it's particularly, I think in a place that's so dominated by, you know, like a very single lens that it's, it's really great. And it's, it can be a deterrent for people that want to get into hockey. Like, I mean, the whole perspective of let's, let's open up this game. It's a really fun game. It's fun to watch. And like, I grew up watching hockey, not only because I'm Canadian, because my mother was obsessed with the Canadians. And so I think it's just, it still is obsessed. I think that, you know, that's really important to provide and just to let everybody know that there are alternatives to the people that you mentioned. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that, that there are definitely really great alternatives and like independent or, you know, lesser known, so to speak, you know, journalists out there doing this work. So there's some conversation. And here's a question specifically about this topic, about this issue. Do you think that maybe sports media and the dude bros out there were less fiery in their condemnation or like non-condemnation because the captaincy is also under debate and they were trying to minimize. Do you think that played a factor in this? I'm not really sure. I think that one of the things that frustrated me most about this story was not just, you know, what Austin Matthews is accused of having doing, but was the reaction from the media. Because like you said, they're primarily male cis head guys, primarily white and they all leaned into this one narrative, which is just about the captaincy. Is he mature enough to, to have the captaincy? And I think for them, it was a very traditional and very safe route to go. It's kind of the obvious storyline, right? Like if you are coming from the perspective of that hockey writer whose job it is to just write about hockey, then you're immediately going to latch on to, oh, well, what does this mean for his captaincy? Or come down one side or the other on whether or not he deserves to be a captain or whether or not he doesn't deserve to be a captain. And 
to me, that was just indicative of the majority of the media being unable to look outside their own perspective, right? Like being unable or unwilling to see this as, uh, you know, way more serious than it, than just does he deserve to be a captain? And I think that's like a really important perspective. And I like, again, I thank you for sharing that with us because basically if y'all want to know anything about hockey, just follow him all. That's all I'm going to say. I'm just going to leave it there. And, you know, I really do appreciate you saying and being honest because sometimes people don't understand what it takes for those of us on the margins to say what we want to say. There are different types of retributions. It's like being blacklisted from certain places, unwelcome, becoming persona non grata. So to do what you do is just, you have so much integrity. And like, I want to thank you. We're big fans at the show of your work. Oh, well, thank you so much. This is, it's so nice to hear that. I am not going to lie. It kind of makes it all worthwhile. And I appreciate it. I do want to encourage people, and this is maybe I'll put into practice um, more of thanking people publicly for that work in addition to privately, because I think that also gives us a little bit of a boost. I know if someone reaches out, it really makes it feel, but your writing on this made it, it feel like less of a load to carry as somebody who loves hockey. So I also... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I really wanted to thank you for that. And are you going to do a little bit of gold digger singing for me? (laughs) I can't. Oh, no way. (laughs) But I will open invite. You said that you've never been to karaoke. (laughs) So I'm actually inviting myself. The next time I'm in Toronto or you're in Washington, D.C., we're going to go do karaoke and do gold digger. Oh, you know what? That would be amazing. Next time you're in Toronto, hit me up. I will totally, totally go. I'll get my crew here together and we'll we'll do a little karaoke thing. It'll be tons of fun. But thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Where can we find your work? Uh, you can find it at ftw.usatoday.com. There's an author bar there. Or you can follow me on Twitter at H-E-M-J-H-A-V-E-R-I. Those are probably the two best places. Awesome. And again, thank you so much for being on the show. You like you're a delight and I love your work. You're brilliant. So thanks so much. Well, right back at you guys. I'm so appreciative of the work that you guys do. So this has been super fun for me and an honor. Jessica, can you take us into our next conversation? Yeah. So I was thinking about bandwagon fans recently, which is the, you know, the idea that like, uh, the Fairweather fan who shows up when teams are suddenly winning. In part, <laughs> this was inspired because Courtney Williams, uh, she's a guard for the Connecticut Sun, who today, Sunday, so when you guys hear this, this will have already happened, but today starts the WNBA Finals and the Sun are meeting the Washington Mystics. Courtney Williams said to the Athletics Molly Yannity before the start of the Suns semifinal series against the LA Sparks, which I think part of the context here is that I believe the Sparks, even though they were seated lower, were uh, in the betting books, they were supposed to win, right? Slight, slight underdog for the Connecticut Sun. So Courtney Williams said, quote, yes, we have a chip on our shoulder. The media, everyone always picks against us. Don't matter. We matter. They're counting us out, and we already have a bandwagon that is full. Don't try to get on it too late. So I thought, this is so interesting. Like, I, there's always this conversation that comes up around 
bandwagon fan. And like, I'm not mad at Williams. I, I like love her swagger. I love swagger in general. I love her for pointing out that this WNBA team has a lot of dedicated and long-term fans who've been here the whole time. And I don't honestly think like that Williams would, you know, turn away a new fan who's suddenly found the team because they have the media hype and presence because they've done so well in the playoffs. And because finally, just it seems like in general, the media is paying attention to the WNBA in a new way. But you also do get that feeling of like, how do we we say it? Like, dance with the one that brought you. Or if you don't love us at our worst, you don't deserve us at our best. This way that that that's being a better fan if you are willing to like slog it out with them. But I don't know, like fans are fans, right? And they have to start somewhere. And I think on some level, I take this all personally, because I'm a total Fairweather fan. <laughs> like I will bounce around. I I get invested in teams for very short periods of time. It's interesting because my son always wants to know who I think is going to win. <laughs> like that that's his sense of like what sport is, is like that you have to pick a team and, and root for them. And then I guess my last thought before I get throw it to you guys is that I was thinking about burn it all down. And when I mean, we're 126 weeks into this, right, which is like a lot of our lives so far. And <laughs> when we get a new person who is so excited to have found us, I'm just excited that they're here. And not that I'm mad. You know what I mean? Like, I just I like to think, I don't know, it seems like sport, the whole point is to grow community. I'm like, always here for it. But I do get that tension there with you really want to respect the van's who've seen you through the bad times. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Um, I love your parallel to burn it all down. And you're right. Like anytime, like we do have <laughs> listeners, we do have listeners that will be like, oh, we've been listening since week one. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I and thought I it was only them. I know they're like so dedicated. And I, I totally appreciate that. And we love you and that support. Cause like, I literally thought it was just the, the five of us listening and my mom for, for week one, but it, it was, it's really <laughs> nice to like, it's really nice to see that, but that doesn't mean that we're not happy to embrace new people. And this uh, conversation came up a lot. And for those of you that have forgotten for five minutes before I remind you that the 2019 NBA championships are the Toronto Raptors, oh, um, the champions. So I'll weave that into every episode I'm on. Yes, so you, you do. I it's do. True. Unapologetically. So there was a lot Time of conversation. Time is ticking now. <laughs> yeah. It's, sorry. Just the conversation about that. And there's a lot of people that weren't into basketball that suddenly became into basketball. But what that did was maybe introduce new people to a sport that they felt connected to somehow for whatever reason. Maybe it wasn't basketball that they loved, but it was Serge Ibaka because it's very difficult not to love Serge Ibaka or different communities that fell in love with them. And you had people of all ages and all you know backgrounds really falling in love with the sport. And I think that's really beautiful. And there are definitely those that say that if you weren't here from the beginning, if you weren't here from like 96, 95, forget it. If you don't know Vince Carter is, you don't belong here. No, you always belong here. And this um, ownership of, of sport is it's like entitlement. And I don't, I don't love it personally. I'm a huge jumper. Like, so I fell in love with, you know, Renieri and I fell in love with Riyad Marais and, and, and all of that team. And I'm not, I'm a long suffering Arsenal supporter. So I will jump. I also will jump wherever Yaya Toure goes. I will jump wherever I will, I will do that because sport is so problematic also that you find the gems and you follow them like Pogba, like I'll, I'll follow him. So 
It's just if we put up these borders, the borders are man-made anyway, but if we put up these other restrictions and these barriers, I'm just like, nah, Bren. I can't think of a different, more, well, like a more challenging moment for hardcore women's soccer fans than this past World Cup. Everybody all of a sudden knew all kinds of stuff about women's soccer, which (laughs) they don't. And then yeah, that that's a good point when you when people jump in and are suddenly experts. Oh, that and, is a wrinkle. And not but, yeah, not only experts, but have super bad takes, especially dudes <laughs> that don't care about women's soccer on a regular basis. Who are like Julie Ertz is going to have a breakout World Cup? No, she's not. She's <laughs> actually not. I um, love that you have brought it back to. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, because she, because she, because she's not, and she won't. And I know she's married to an NFL player, which is how most. Now, look, if like if Stephanie Yang had that opinion, fair, we can argue about that, right? But, but Stephanie so, didn't have that opinion. But some bro <laughs> coming in that just knows that she's married to an NFL player and thinks that's badass, and so he wikied her or something is like is like shut the fuck up (laughs) like come on dude like don't even pretend you know anything people are like i i saw people on twitter saying stuff like oh megan rapinoe's playing back so far deep for a striker it's like what are you talking about yeah what are you talking about like i just it's like you're taking up my twitter space and yes i may follow you for the occasional intelligent tweet about you know men's basketball but like you know this is simply not your platform right now you know alexi lalas talking about ada hergerberg like <laughs> as if he's watched a women's game knows the pay gap <laughs> or understands a single thing so i get so like bandwagon fans yay like i generally i can be one too i'm one right now with the rugby world cup i'm a super bandwagon i'm just like hanging off the sides like i'm they're barely letting me on <laughs> who, are you, who are you supporting for rugby oh new zealand new okay zealand. we good yeah we good yeah. yeah which and, is like that if you're gonna that's like a total bandwagon move yes, right because yes. if you know anything about rugby you you know that you should root for new zealand totally you yeah, want to yeah. feel good about it yeah, yeah yeah so i guess it's the difference between bandwagon fans which i am sometimes and i'm cool with and bandwagon I think I'm an expert now fan. Yeah, absolutely. There's a difference between expertise and there's a difference. And Brian, you have a rightful place in football with that expertise specifically. You have a PhD and you wrote a book. I don't know what Alexi Lalas has other than his <laughs> I wrote two inane books. Oh, yeah, you wrote two, two books. books. <laughs> Sorry, you wrote two books. And I have both of them. And I will just digress for two seconds on two things. I'm so mad Julie Ertz is part of the World Eleven. I cannot I even get over that. I'm so mad about that. She just does not deserve to be there. And the second thing is I get back to this rainy day in June where I was walking in Trocadero with the well-known Jessica Luther. And it was... <laughs> We walked by the Fox media booth and it was so ready to heckle, but it was pouring rain. And Jessica's like, let's go. Home. I didn't have <laughs> a raincoat or an umbrella. 
in my own defense. <laughs> Tell people good. what you were doing there. I wanted to heckle. Well, we were we were there to cover the Women's World Cup, and then I knew that Fox was at Fox was at you know at Trecadero, and we were at the Eiffel Tower, and we had a lovely picnic, and then it started to pour and rain in Paris. It's unforgiving and gross, and I was ready to like you know, try to make eye contact with the bodyguards or the the security. You went and up try- to the bodyguard. I, did I? Oh, okay. I you were like, really close. You were going to like, <laughs> you're going to talk your way in. I was going to try and maybe offer him a decal, the security guard. You never know. <laughs> but I just was like so frustrated at that, like masquerading as an expert about something you clearly don't know. I mean, I thought Fox did a great coverage. I'm a big fan of Aaron West. Like he's, he's a great guy and he's a friend of the show, but I'm not interested in Alexi Laws talking about anything. You're not an expert. You're not a bandwagon fan. You're not even a fan. And that much is so clear. And you're right, Brenda, he's taking up a lot of space. So it's as much as it's okay for us to be bandwagon fans, there's certain bandwagon fans that I think it's okay for us to resist against. Jess? Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Like there does seem to, you like you have to be really transparent in your newness, I think, as a bandwagon fan, instead of trying to act like you understand everything, if you're going to do it the right way. Because I mean, there's no... Like part of why we love sport is winning and like watching something because you know that that might be the outcome, right? And that you will get to feel happy alongside whatever team that you are rooting for. And I don't begrudge anyone wanting to feel that and jumping on when that's more of a guarantee. But you both are so correct that it's this sort of, I don't know, the, yeah, the person who shows up and then immediately acts like they know everything just just embrace that you are new there and and that you don't know everything and it's okay to be fair weather in that way you have to start somewhere if you're going to become a long-standing fan and yeah I guess you just have to be transparent about that (laughs) yeah I I think the transparency is good or just the like you know especially if there's people in media like you know supporting and sharing people's work that have been long in that space versus sort of, you know, just taking total credit for the one opinion you have that might work out. Like, you know, look, Barcelona won or something, you know, I don't know. But those informed opinions are really important when you do get to the big issues in sports. So there is a way in which the bandwagon-y stuff can drive you crazy. At the same time, the fact that Megan Rapinoe, that there are like, U.S. football players doing the Megan Rapino is yeah. so awesome. Yeah, welcome. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. awesome! I'm like, and I don't, I don't, I don't even know if maybe they've always been longtime women's soccer fans, but I'm going to take a guess that they're bandwagon fans, and they're the ones that we that we want. You know, that's what you're going for. So as much as I'm talking about the the World Cup and how that felt sometimes, it also feels so great to have like my Instagram and my Facebook and my Twitter feeds all with people who don't normally do things like share women's soccer stories getting excited about it like that's really awesome and it gives me a chance to have conversations with people that I like and that I'm friends with that usually think what I do is like incredibly boring so that's really nice you know I remember when Alex Morgan retweeted the article that article I had written with Jen Doyle And like four years ago, I felt like nobody would know who that was. And not nobody. Okay, she's very famous. But 
my friends, you know, nerdy, booky folk, you know, they're not into soccer. So anyway, there's so that's been wonderful. And their fight for, you know, pay equality and Megan Rapinoe's speech that was also about anti-racism. All those things make me also excited and proud that I can like share the things I like the most with people that I can't always share them with. On to our favorite part of the show, the burn pile. Brenda, what are you burning this week? (laughs) Okay. I don't often burn the behavior of fellow women. Well, I guess we did Lindsay Sharp at the top of the show. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, you're on a roll, Bren. You're on a roll. Just go ahead. (laughs) Okay, fine. Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. Props to her for being the first woman to hold that position and the first woman to be you know, the leader of a major union of professional sports here in in the U.S. She's a lawyer and, and great for her for being a pioneer. Unfortunately, at this point, she decided in a recent event where it was a forum moderated by Jamel Hill and also with Adam Silver, she spoke about the pay gap between the WNBA and NBA. And I'd like to think that I'm channeling Lindsay Gibbs, who's not on the show today. But I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. But I'd like to just just say that I'm doing this, you know, because I imagine she would and she'd do it way better. So I'll just be quick. But Michelle Roberts said, what I think we have to be realistic about in some respects is the revenue that is generated in each game. The men's game is just much more profitable and generates more revenue than the women's game does. First, that's dumb. That's a stupid, stupid thing to say. Nobody, nobody nowhere is scratching their head and saying, I wonder if the WNBA generates as much revenue as the NBA. Nobody ever anywhere said that, I'm sure, except <laughs> Michelle Roberts had to like somehow qualify that. So she's using this old trope that pretends that there's no reason for that gap to exist that it's just a natural gap, not one that's created by the fact of coverage, of moving venues. And it's it's just, for me, incredibly disrespectful during the WNBA playoffs for a player representative, someone who's supposed to be pro-union, someone who's supposed to care about gender discrimination and pay, to come out with that bullshit. I can only imagine Jamel Hill's face. That's I I mean, I didn't watch the entire thing, but I bet it was wonderful. So I just want to really I want to burn the fact that it hurts to see a pioneering woman reiterate some very hack kind of argument that is so so facile. And I want to burn the fact that she didn't even bother to look if that's what any WNBA player ever said. Are any of those WNBA players unrealistic about revenue or are they realistic, but you didn't bother to look? So I want to burn that. Burn. Burn. I'll go next. And this was uh, a reoccurring theme that we've talked about on the show a lot is racism in men's football and football generally. I really want to burn this. It started when Manchester City's Bernardo Silva sent out a tweet about his teammate 
Benjamin Mondi, and Mondi plays for the French national team as well. He plays for Man City with Silva. So he tweeted out a photo of Mendy as a young boy, like a school photo, and he's adorable. And then beside it, he pasted like a racist caricature and was like, oh, we all know who this is. And it's like, and then like a ha-ha kind of thing. So everyone's like, what is happening? And it took me back to when, you know, Antoine Griezmann had blackface and everyone's confused. And then he did the, you know, his best friend is Paul Pogba. Like, and so anyways, what I'm specifically burning is the coach of the team, the manager, Pep Guardiola, who is a legend at Barcelona and someone I'm so ready to cancel, defended it and said, you know, they're good friends. So having a black friend allows you to do this. And then he gets into the discussion saying it's not racist. He's not racist. But What I'm burning here is the conflation of what is racist. A person doesn't necessarily have to be racist in order to do racist things all the time. And I know that sounds really bizarre, but what I'm trying to say is, fine, Silva's very close to him and thought that was funny, but it's okay to call out people who aren't like bigots necessarily and say what you did was racist. So stop doing that. And instead, Guardiola gets up there in a you know post-training presser and was addressing the questions. I think it was post-match presser, actually, and was like, no, defending it. Instead of saying, yeah, this was a terrible, terrible thing to do. We will talk about it. This is unacceptable. So that's one part of my burn. Second part of my burn is media going after Black players and asking them specifically what they think. Raheem Sterling, who I love, was saying that he defended Silva and said, you know, we're all friends, which surprised me because, you know, Raheem Sterling has been the stalwart in terms of talking about racism. But the media even doing that bothers me. Ask a white player, ask somebody else. Don't put the burden on black men to have to do this work, what they do. And it puts Sterling in a terrible position to have to speak up against a teammate, which I think this can be held and addressed within the locker room and education be done, which is sorely lacking. So I'm going to burn Pep Guardiola's vacuous commentary on this. And I also want to burn the fact that people are pushing black men to do the work on this. So I'm going to burn all of that. Jessica? Yeah, so Malcolm Gladwell has a new book called Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. According to his publisher, this is what the book is about. Quote, something is very wrong, Gladwell argues, with the tools and strategies we use to make sense of people we don't know. And because we don't know how to talk to strangers, we are inviting conflict and misunderstanding in ways that have a profound effect on our lives and our world. I have not read this book, and I will not be reading this book. I shouldn't have to ingest harmful material and be harmed by it in order to wonder aloud if it needs to exist. But my understanding from reading a ton of reviews is that he builds his argument in this book around psychologist Tim Levine's idea that we as members of the society have a, quote, default to truth that makes it so we have a hard time recognizing a liar and on the flip on the flip side, often recognizing people telling the truth. Cool theory, much intellectual. In his Gladwell way, he argues his overall thesis by applying it to a whole host of different scenarios. And the problem with Gladwell one of them, is that he delves into topics he doesn't know much about outside of the way a particular story can be twisted into fitting whatever pet theory he's trying to prove. In talking to strangers, that means that in at least two cases of sexual violence, he pushes aside what we know about campus sexual assault and about power structures and accountability in big-time college football, a couple topics that I feel like I know a little bit about, 
to make dumb but also harmful arguments. Okay, so stick with me here. So in a chapter on campus sexual assault, he focuses on the infamous Brock Turner case, often frustratingly referred to as the Stanford Swimmer case. You'll remember it as a case where Turner was convicted of sexual assault for raping Chanel Miller when she was unconscious. Two witnesses intervened. Just a side note, Miller has recently disclosed her identity publicly, and she has a new book called Know My Name. So according to the New York Times book review of Talking Strangers, Gladwell describes this assault thusly, quote, a young woman, this is hard for me to even read, a young woman and a young man meet at a party, then proceed to tragically misunderstand each other's intentions, and they're drunk. Holy shit. Who cares what else he has to say about any of this? That should be enough. But this leads me to the, his chapter on Sandusky and Penn State. Tom Lay, bless his heart, wrote about this for Deadspin, and we will link to this in the show notes, but I will warn you, it's an incredibly hard thing to read, and I found it very upsetting. Gladwell uses the work of one John Ziegler to mainly make his case, and Ziegler is a conservative radio host who is also a diehard paterno apologist who believes Sandusky is innocent. Yes, you heard all that correctly. Gladwell then compares the Sandusky case to the Nasser case in order to make some kind of argument that victims who remain close to their abusers are likely not victims at all, or some shit. I honestly, I... It just hurts me. The excerpt that Lay gives for this bit has no through logic based on what we know about how common it actually is for abuse victims to remain friendly with their abusers. Lay writes, quote, Gladwell wants it known that Paterno and the other Penn State administrators can't possibly be held morally responsible for never bringing McQuarrie's story to the police, the original report. As Levine's theory demonstrates, they were simply acting like any rational human being would have. They were defaulting to the truth that Sandusky was a good and trustworthy guy rather than a potential pedophile. Lay then explains all the information about the case that Gladwell glosses, glosses over to make his argument. And look, I get how seductive Gladwell's writing is. This is why I'm spending so much time saying all of this. I read Outliers over a decade ago. I was taken in by it. He seems to make the complicated uncomplicated. And who doesn't want to uncomplicate things, especially in these moments? But that's bullshit. And especially when it comes to deeply difficult issues in our society like gendered violence. And I'm just going to give Tom Lay the last word here about this, of words that will hopefully convince you that you're listening not to give Gladwell your money. Quote, Gladwell's after nothing more than his own gratification here. And the fact that he's willing to use two infamous sexual assault cases as rhetorical springboards tells you all you need to know about how shallow his well of ideas has gotten. Burn all of this. Burn. Burn. Moving on to some happiness, which we so desperately need after that intense burn pile. I will start with honorable mentions. This week in tennis saw titles for multiple women. Naomi Osaka won the Tori Pan Pacific Open in Osaka, Japan, the city where she was born. Sophia Kennan won the Guangzhou International, claiming her third WTA singles title of the year. Carolina Muchova won her first career title at the KEB Hannah Bank Korea Open in Seoul. Congratulations to winners of FIFA's best awards, including Megan Rapino, who won Women's Player of the Year, U.S. coach Jill Ellis, who won Women's Coach of the Year, Zari Van Vienendal of the Netherlands, who very rightly won Best Women's Goalkeeper. Shoutouts to FIFA Women's World 11, Rapino and Van Vienendal, as well as Lucy Bronze, Mila Fisher, Kelly O'Hara, Wendy Renard, Julie Ertz, Amandine Henri, Rose Lavelle, Alex Morgan, and Marta. 
Seattle NHL team hired their first scouts, and among them is former USA star and Hockey Hall of Famer Cami Granato. She will be the first female pro scout in the NHL. 15,000 fans attended the final game of the season for the Ecuadorian Women's Football League, and that's amazing. England's legendary women's cricket player, Sarah Taylor, has announced her retirement. We wish you all the best, Sarah. And bon courage and good luck to all the players, coaches, and administration in the Jeddah Women's Football League, which is starting on October 4th. Also, good luck to all the women competing at the IAAF 2019 Worlds in Doha, including 41-year-old, 41-year-old Canadian grade three teacher, Lindsay Tessier, who actually finished ninth in the marathon. We have some results. And in the 10,000 meters, Stefan Hussain, the Dutch distance queen, took gold. Ethiopia's Letesenbat Giddy got silver and Kenya's Agnes Tirup got bronze. Now, Asheti Bikari of Ethiopia won the Berlin Marathon in 2 hours, 20 minutes, and 14 seconds. Berlin is one of the five major marathons in the world and historically has the fastest course. Bikari's countrymate, Mara Dibaba, came in only seven seconds behind her. Now, can I get a drum roll, please? Amazing. That was amazing. Ruth Chepigengich of Kenya for winning the gold in women's marathon final at the IAAF Championships in Doha, Qatar, in sweltering over 35 degrees. Congratulations, Ruth. You are amazing. Now, moving on to what's good what's good brenda oh <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot good no, no 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 that's not that's not true i did have a rough when i think about what's good in sports right now in my usual sports it's like it's sad just you know because because messi's injured and boo and I think Valverde doesn't know what he's doing at Barcelona. And so I have, a, I have that frustration. What's good, though, in, related to my sports, is the New Zealand thing to, still and the Rugby World Cup that Japan keeps winning. And I think that's so exciting. And the images, like, everyone just looks so happy. And then on top of it, another cool thing about the host country is they also learned, I talked on last week's show about their beer consumption. But a Apparently, apparently they're also just giant eaters, and <laughs> and so the Jap- so the Japanese have had to overturn a rule that they had where you couldn't bring outside food, and they had oh my goodness, and they had to let the rugby people bring in outside food. So the food ban has been lifted because of these like voracious World Cup. First, there was the beer shortage problem, and now it's like food. And I'm just like also loving what must be the spectatorship there. <laughs> we got to get Brenda to the World Rugby. I do. I do. Well, the women's one is in a, the World Cup. Yeah, I'll, I'm ready. I got to get ready for the... By the time the women's one comes around in a couple of years, I'm going to really know what I'm talking about. And then... And then just finally, um, I have to say, I loved the FIFA Best Awards because ha, 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 Ronaldo. (laughs) Of course, you're not the best player in the world. And I think it's amazing that he never puts Messi on his ballot. So it's talk about karma. How could you not put Messi on the top three? At least Messi puts Ronaldo. He's not like demented. Are we so we know that yeah. we know how they yeah. vote. 
Oh, we'll wow. actually okay. link the uh, we'll link huh. it to the show notes. You can see who voted like one person from each team, usually the captain, except in the case of the U.S. because they're both like co-captains were nominated. So Jill Ellis put in the bid, uh, the ballot for them. But you can see who voted for whom. Yeah, it's amazing. So so um, Messi picked Manet. Right. And then he picked Ronaldo second. Ronaldo didn't even put Messi on his ballot, nor has he ever. Wow. So literally, Ronaldo doesn't, wow. doesn't think that Messi has been one of the top three players in the world ever. <laughs> I love it. Of course, you lost. <laughs> I'll go next. I had an amazing time last weekend. The PWHPA Dream Gap Tour of Women's Hockey Excellence. I got to go see a game, two games, actually. Um, it was a lot of fun. I went with Dr. Courtney Sito and Dr. Young Eun Lee, um, and who are my friends and hockey players and, you know, enthusiasts. It was just, it was incredible. I got to meet Hillary Knight. I gave her a decal. Mm. She was a little bit weary of me at first <laughs> because I think I was a little bit enthusiastic. <laughs> and, you know, rightly so. She's got a lot of fans and sometimes, you know, it's, it's important to be aware of you know, who's like coming at you so excitedly, but uh, she was great. And she actually said she knew burn it all down because her teammate, former Le Canadien player, Melanie Desrochers, who is a huge fan of the show, she talks about us in the locker room. And I mean, just the fact that these incredible players hear about our show in the locker room is really excites me. I got to meet Jessica Platt, who is a former Toronto Furies player, and just was so excited to meet her. I gave out tons of decals, was really happy to represent. Something else that's happening in my life is I'm a TEDx Toronto speaker. And Yay! I just, yeah, I'm really excited about that. It's, it's going to happen October 26th. I just found out that the whole conference is being hosted by Cardinal Official. I love Cardi. He's Toronto's Cardi. He's a legend. And I'm so, so excited. I still will talk to him because I found the lyrics of a song with Akon dangerous, a little bit misogynist. So I will say this to him. But anyways, and the last thing I'm going to talk about, which is just personally giving me a, a lot of laughs and jokes, are our very own Dr. Miros Davis videos with her husband, Michael, as they travel through Europe. I'm literally dying with laughter because I follow them both. And then I'll see Amira's and then I'll see Michael's. And they were just hilarious, particularly because he called you his he called her his little croissant. And I just could not stop laughing. So thank you both for doing that. And on that note of love, I just finished reading Pride, Prejudice and Other Favors. It was written by Sona Lee Dev and it was gifted to me by Jessica Luther. And I have never read romance before. And it was just a really wonderful, wonderful read by a South Asian author that I really appreciated. So that's pretty wonderful. Woo. Yay. Jess? Yeah, well, screen reading a romance novel just looks good for me. <laughs> I have, I don't know, it, September is always such a busy time for me. So part of what's good is that I survived September. But I want to just give everyone a Jane the Virgin update. I've made it to the middle of the fourth season. Oh, wow. I deeply <laughs> love the show. I'm... I'm in man I like I wish it could go faster almost because I want to know sort of how it's all going to resolve but I do just I just think it's one of the best written like storytelling is phenomenal and Rogelio forever right I did want to give a couple shout outs to a couple white dudes who have been making my life good this week I'm in love with a podcast called Hip Parade that's hosted by a guy named Chris Melanthi this is a music podcast where he tells you why number one songs are number one Ooh. at a certain period of time. And you get this like amazing historical context that's both musical and cultural. And 
I just credit to Chris Melanthi because he's not a bro. And what I mean by that is that he is non-judgmental about the music itself. And so I just listened to an episode about Britney Spears and Swedish pop music and how these and Max Martin, that producer, and how these two things come together. And there is just no judgment on his part about Britney Spears. Like it's music that people love, and he's going to tell you why they love it and how it fits into that moment in time. The latest episode is about Rhythm Nation, which is one of my all-time favorite albums, and it's just brilliant, and I learned so much listening to it. So Hit Parade. And then the other thing is Nice Try is a new book by friend of the show and my own personal friend, Josh Gondelman, and he is a comedian. He is lovely, and the book is really about – the difference between being nice and being good and his own personal journey from being moving from being a nice boy to a good man and and what that means to do that and how he defines it for himself but he's also just very funny and earnest and the book is lovely so nice try by Josh Gondelman has been um I literally am laughing out loud as I read it so I've I can't really I do it in public. Like people look at me when I'm reading the book. So that's what's good for me. Awesome. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and all night in our fabulous array of merchandise, which includes mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags, and decals. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting someone you love or getting yourself a pillow with our logo on it. Um, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, what helps us do the work we love to do and keeps burning what needs to be burned. As Brenda always says, burn on and not out. On behalf of Jessica and Brenda, I'm Shereen Ahmed. Thank you so much. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you up.